Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hazel Gaynor's best-selling historical novels like to take famous events and look at how they affected the lives of the little people. In her most recent book, her eighth one, Meet Me in Monaco, does just that with the events surrounding Grace Kelly's marriage to Prince Rainier. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Hazel talks about what it takes to build a successful author career and the titanic love story that got her launched. But before we get to Hazel, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Hazel's books as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Hazel. Hello there, Hazel, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, it's so great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Look, your first novel won a Historical Novel of the Year contest with the Romantic Writers, uh, so, no, Romantic Novelists Association. You've gone on mm. to write seven other historical novels. Most of them are, have been bestsellers in more than one country. And the most recent of them is Meet Me in Monaco, which details Princess Grace's transition or Grace Kelly's transition to Princess Grace. So how did you get started? Gosh, well, it's interesting because actually my first finished novel um, was never published. That's uh, in a a drawer, (laughs) never to see the light of day, which I think is the experience of most published authors. And it's just that process of believing in yourself, finding time in your day. I was writing in the, at the start of my career when I had very young children. So there was no time to actually sit down and write, but it, it's funny how you find time. And so that was my learning book. And I think most authors have that. Um, and I think the process of writing that gave me the confidence to, when I started to write The Girl Who Came Home, which is inspired by the story of the Titanic and a group of Irish passengers on the Titanic specifically. I think because I had sat down at the kitchen table at five o'clock in the morning before anyone was awake, I knew I could do it. Um, so that that was really where I started, although I had two years prior to writing a novel, I had written a blog about my life as a an ex-corporate businesswoman who then became a stay-at-home mom and all of the sort of huge changes that brought to my life. So I've been writing about my personal experience, writing about being a mom. And again, I think it just, it's like an apprenticeship. It kind of let me find my voice, my style, and and just the confidence to, to stop doubting myself and to sit down and write and see what happens. Yes. Now that first unpublished novel, was that also historical? No, it wasn't actually. It was very contemporary. I suppose it would be sort of called contemporary women's fiction. Um, And it's interesting because 
that's probably why it didn't become the book I was meant to get published with because it 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 wasn't really where my passion where my heart was my heart has always been if you look at my bookshelves they're littered with historical novels um I studied history to a level at school um but I I thought I should write a women's contemporary novel because lots of people I knew were, were writing women's contemporary novels and it's it's one piece of advice I would give to authors now is, you know, write what you want to write. Don't write what you think you should write because you won't do you won't do a good job with it if it's not in your heart, if you're really not passionate about it. And what is it do you think that draws you to historical fiction? Um, I think for me, we, it just provides an incredibly rich source of story story and I think we're living actually and it purely you know was coincidental that we're living through this period of of time now where we're hitting lots of sort of historical milestones you know we're living through uh, centenary events commemorative events of both the first world war and the second world war the liberation of Auschwitz was just commemorated the 75th anniversary of that just the other week um, you know, we 2012 saw the 100-year commemoration of the sinking of Titanic. And it, it's possibly that, I think, that it's we're talking so much about these fa- fascinating, horrific, world-changing events that happened in the distant past. And yet technology, um, sort of the world has shrunk so much, we're, we're, we're so much... Um, more able, I think, to reach out to people who were potentially involved. And uh, history to me seems not so much this black and white sepia tinted thing that we might have thought it was. It feels very dynamic um, to me. And I, I, I find myself really drawn to those human stories. So, you know, an ordinary young woman with children, very similar to me now, but what would that have been like if your children suddenly had to go to war or, or or if one of them was caught up in this incredible disaster? So it's that really human, the ordinary person caught up in these extraordinary events. That's what really, really interests me. Yes. Now, Meet Me in Monaco uh, was co-authored with Heather Webb, and that's the second co-authoring um, work that you've done how did you get together to to decide to write and how does the collaboration work yeah it's fantastic we both say it's a really sort of unexpected addition to our careers we have the same literary agent and when we were both um debut authors back in 2013 she connected us and said I think you two will get on she was writing Heather was writing historical novels as well um so we really just cheered each other on through that experience of um publishing our debut novels and over the the few years we started to talk we'd collaborated on a an anthology Heather curated which involved nine authors writing about the end of the great war and after that we started to talk and we um decided to work together on what was our first co-written novel, Last Christmas in Paris, which tells the story of um, a male and female perspective of the four years of the First World War. And we had such an incredible time. We loved doing it. Um, It really complements our individual writing. We bounce ideas off each other. And it's it's really lovely to have that person in your corner. So we decided to to do it again. And we wrote uh, Meet Me in Monaco, which having written a very sort of 
dark in one way, but it's also very hopeful, our our um, book Last Christmas in Paris, but it is war. And I think having written that, we felt we wanted to do something very different, very summery, very romantic, um, and pinned around the, the story of, as you said, uh, Grace Kelly, who married Prince Renier of Monaco, and how, again, very ordinary people, we have two um, a young perfumer in France and a young British press photographer who get caught up in that whirlwind romance and wedding and how those how that affects their lives as well. So it was a fantastic book to research together and write together. And we love it. We love the collaboration. Now, that's probably the most recent, in quotes, historical because it starts in the mid-50s and reaches mm. into the 70s. Um, yeah. And I've, I've actually heard it said that Hollywood books perhaps don't sell as well as other books, which surprises me a bit because I would have expected the opposite. But what mm. made you set your sights on this particular story? Um, well, again, I think it was partly a coming out of writing about the, the Great War, um, and we both felt we had really researched that and, and, and written it and we were so proud of Last Christmas in Paris and, and so fond of our characters. So it was really, I suppose, creatively a challenge to each other, to ourselves, as to where will we go next? And, and quite deliberately, it really started with location. So whereas Last Christmas in Paris, obviously by the title itself, it's um, quite a seasonal book, we wanted to do the polar opposite. So summer, sunshine, um, you know, the Mediterranean Sea. And that took us to... Um, the Riviera to Cannes Film Festival, and obviously we're looking we're history girls, so we're looking at the past and all of those, you know, the golden age of Hollywood, those iconic stars. Um, and Grace Kelly was one that kept coming out. And when we thought about it and talked about it, we we had both been interested in her story independently to this and wanted to find out more. There's there's all sorts of speculation and. Um, gossip surrounded that relationship and we wanted to dig into it um and understand a little bit more about her and what was going on around that relationship and actually that happened just at the same time as Meghan Markle um being engaged to Prince Harry so it was almost like here we are history repeating itself another American princess so yes. again sort of dynamism of history um it really appealed to us, but that's what's lovely with with writing historicals. We and neither of us have uh, sort of become entrenched too much in a very narrow period of history. I mean, it's very much twentieth century history, um, but it gives you a, a nice sort of scope to find stories that really ignite something. And I think if you're living with a story, researching, writing, promoting for over a two three year period, you really need to love it. Um, so it, it's it's really fabulous when you find that thing, person, event that really gets you, and you want to you want to really dig in. You quote Grace Kelly as saying, "I avoid looking back. I prefer good memories to regrets." Mm. Now you kind of almost tantalisingly wonder if she was hinting at the fact that she had regrets, but she was ignoring them. Or is that more the overall theme of the story itself? Yeah, a little bit of both, really. Um, I mean, Grace really acts, we've we've talked about this and said she really acts as sort of a fairy godmother in the book. And it's how her 
romance and all of the media circus that surrounded that wedding, how that impacted on other people who would otherwise not have been in any way associated with the royal family or a princess-to-be. And as I said, you know, this was one of the first sort of global media celebrity couples. Um, And as we see exactly the same today, the newspapers could not get enough of them. And of course, where there's love, where they will always follow gossip, speculation, are they really as happy? Is she really giving up her, her fabulous acting career to marry this sort of really curious man who nobody knew much about. Um, So it was really interesting. There's lots of, she was a very quotable woman. Um, She was a very complex woman, you know, much more than perhaps she's been given credit for in terms of the charitable work she did and, and how important her role as a princess was to her. Um, But yeah, it, it really opened up that whole sort of avenue of, missed opportunities, those sliding doors, moments in life that mean we're in just the right place at just the right time or or not. Um, and do we live with regret or are we content with the decisions we've made? Um, so yeah, we, we, we did an awful lot of research. There are certainly some schools of thought that would say she had a very unhappy marriage. And there are others, we read books, for example, written by one of her bridesmaids, a very dear friend who said she was very much in love. And of course, all marriages have problems and challenges. Um, and she was very aware of that. So yeah, she she was a really fascinating woman to um, inspire a book around. It almost sounds like there's more there that you could use in another book sometime. But <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> You've referred to your first book, the one that is based around the Titanic, and it mm. was also predicated on that anniversary that you've mentioned, the 100th anniversary of its loss in 2012. How mm. did that gave you the push that you needed? But how did all those factors come together? Well, purely by chance, to be honest, because as I mentioned, I was, I'd been writing another book entirely, um, and I... I had always been interested in in the Titanic. I was about 14, 15 years old when the wreck was found. Um, And suddenly this footage of this iconic ship and a child's toy and a a boot and a plate and a saucer, it suddenly humanized the whole thing. Um, And I was very, very interested in it. And just I suppose my my novelist's gaze started to wander. Um, And I, I just thought to myself one day, you know, I could write a book about the Titanic, but then I thought, no, you can't, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's terrifying. It's far too <laughs> enormous an event and too tragic. And how would I even do that? But anyway, I think sometimes an idea finds you um, rather than you finding the idea. And living in Ireland, I understood obviously the, the boat was built in Belfast and its last port of call before it set off across the Atlantic was Um, in County Cork. So I started to look into who were the Irish, and obviously they were the least wealthy, most of them, and so they would have been in steerage, which had the greatest loss of life. So I started to research the Irish passengers on the Titanic, and that was what, um, again, led me to this this nugget of what I felt was a relatively untold story of the Titanic. We we associate it with the very wealthy, with the Astors and the Strausses, and the, the finery of first-class accommodation. And I found a story of a group of 14 friends and family from County Mayo who traveled together. And it was their story um, 
although I didn't use real names, I fictionalized and amalgamated some of those people into my version of, of their experience um, sailing together on the Titanic and what happened to them. So when I'd started to research and write, I hadn't actually realized that 2012 would be the centenary. So it was a very um, fortunate coming together, the stars aligning, if you like, um, and really did give me the the extra impetus to to write that book and put it out there. Yes. Um, I originally self-published it, um, and that subsequently led to it being noticed by um, the person who's now my agent and represents me, and that then led to my publishing deal with HarperCollins, who I've been with ever since. Well, that, that's a great story, wonderful story. You've mentioned that you are attracted to that um, device of ordinary people's stories, mm. but the other thing I've noticed is that a number of your books have dual timelines, like with the Grace Darling story, the, uh, the lighthouse keeper's daughter, mm. you deal with two generations spread 100 years apart mm. And, and the Titanic one is the same. You treat the generation that went on the boat, but then you treat the um, the impact on the family in the 1980s, sort of 60 years later. Yeah. That's something that you also seem to find very um, attractive as a storytelling device. Yeah, I've, I've done that several times now. And I'm, again, I think, so for example, with The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter, which again was inspired by a, a real... Um, young woman who rescued survivors of a, a shipwreck off the coast of Northumberland in England in 1838. And she became um, sort of a local and, and national heroine, much to her, um, she, you know, she found that very difficult to handle. What I find interesting is if you take, for example, so her as a young woman in 1838, and what interests me is is legacy and, and how people like Grace um, or how these incredible events, the ripple effect they have through time and through generations in a family. And I'm sure we have all got examples of, um, you know, this typical skeletons in the closet or a, a sort of a, a family event that people are vaguely aware of, but nobody really talks about. And I think that's very true of um, people who survived the wars. Um, any of those events historically people were not encouraged to dwell on or talk about it was very much you just get over it get on with it um and it's only now when those people are, are, are often coming to the end of their lives and they have this compulsion to suddenly to talk about it to share their story before it's too late um and i actually have my grandma turned 100 just last november and mm -hmm. I, and i think still having her around is maybe part of that as well because she does every now and again want to tell you something that she's never spoken about before and that's where this sort of dual timeline generational component comes into my stories because I think it's often only through looking back um, that we can really understand why are we the way we are what happened in our family's past and that you know, incredible sense of legacy that written documents, letters, um, an, an old locket, a, a treasured piece of family jewellery, an heirloom. What is its story? And, and what happened to the people who owned it before we did? 
And that's what I often do um, and have done, for example, in The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter I did, as you mentioned, in The Girl Who Came Home and in A Memory of Violets as well, the, my second novel. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lovely way to tell um, the arc of a story and, and have those generational touchstones. Now, you've been translated into 10 languages. You sell in 17 countries. I think there must have been some talk of TV or movie options on one of these wonderful best-selling books. Is there anything like that happening at the moment? No. Do you sometimes <laughs> pinch yourself and think, how lucky am I? I always pinch myself and think how lucky I, I am because, you know, as I said, this is this is very much a second career that I came to just, just when I hit my 40s and, um, you know, very blessed to have been able to to keep writing, you know, we often talk about it's difficult to get published, but it's equally difficult to stay published. Um, so I'm delighted to be still doing it and, you know, always pinching myself, always want more, always looking for that TV or movie deal. I haven't yet yeah. had um, any of my books optioned. I think it's it's most authors, it's on that bucket list of, of wish wishes and dreams. So we we live in hope, maybe one day hopefully not too far in the future. Well, now that Netflix is gobbling up so much um, content, I'd think that there's a good chance. It's, and it's uh, interesting. And uh, even if you look at the, you know, the Golden Globes, the Oscars award season, so many of what currently is, is popular has come from a novel. Um, or, yes. you know, so there's an awful lot of, you're right, you know, Netflix streaming services, they all need content. So we just have to keep writing our books. <laughs> Perhaps moving away from talking about specific books to your wider career, you just alluded to the fact that this is like a second career. Mm. Tell us a little bit about your life before you became a full-time writer and how that experience has influenced your writing. Yeah, so I was in a very different um, sort of career altogether. So I worked for um, professional services, big five corporate law firms, accountancy firms uh, in, the, in the city, in London. I, I spent a year in Australia, worked in Sydney um, in the similar sort of industries. That was, you know, I did a business studies degree. So it very much came out of my um, university degree into that, the career that followed. And I was happily, happily doing that. And then, unfortunately, my position was made redundant um, when the economy here in Ireland crashed in 2009 and I found myself at home with two young children which is something I had never planned to do um, but it's funny isn't it how sometimes life throws these things and and it really turned out to be a blessing in disguise it has given me this creative career that I think was possibly always in me but I had had no contacts in the publishing industry. I didn't know any authors. I was a voracious reader, always have since I was a child, but never in a million years thought somebody like me who didn't know anyone in that business would ever have been able to write books or get them published. I knew nothing about it. Um, so it really has been a blessing and it has allowed me to be around my children more as well because I was dashing off and commuting ridiculous hours to to get to my corporate job and it's it's allowed me to to blend a career I love with being there for my children a bit more so I feel very 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 lucky um from that point of view as well so yeah life changed <laughs> but for the better I think 
It's quite lovely. I see on your website that you perhaps have translated that experience of not really knowing where to start into something called the Inspiration Project, and it's a writing school you've launched with two other Irish writers, Catherine Ryan Howard and Carmel Harrington. Mm. Tell us a little bit about the Inspiration Project and and what, what's happening with it at the moment. Yeah, so that is exactly, as you said, this is where it came from because the uh, the the experience I've just mentioned is is very, very similar with Catherine and, and Carmel. And we, unbeknown to each other at the time, were all trying to find and fathom our way through this publishing industry we knew nothing about. And then Ireland is quite a small um, community of writers and we're very supportive. And we met and over the years of friendship formed and we started to think, you know, how can we, what would we do if we were starting out all over again? What would we want to know? And so we designed the Inspiration Project, which um, is a started out as a, a two-day writing event and, and is now a one-day writing event, hopefully soon to become a podcast, where we talk very honestly, very openly about what, what worked for us, um, you know, not so much do's and don'ts, but real sort of practical examples of how to improve your chances of being published you know, some some just information that it's really hard to come by if you're not in the industry. How does a publishing deal work? What is an advance? What does that mean? What are royalties? You know, so um, really honest, open, hopefully amusing, um, fun advice um, where we get lots of like-minded people together because it's often that sort of almost holding your hand up saying, I, I want to be a writer and just admitting it in front of a group of people is is quite cathartic. So we've absolutely loved doing the courses. We're very proud of it, um, you know, and it's something we'll we'll do for as long as we're enjoying doing it. Um, so hopefully there's a lot more to come. Great. And do you also cover the possibility of being an indie, indie published writer as well as trade published? Yeah, absolutely. All three of us initially were published as indies. So we each self-published to start our career and then have subsequently transitioned over into a traditional publishing route. So we have the full experience, if you like, to talk about and share with read with writers, whether they're coming to it from preferring an indie route or wanting a hybrid or purely traditional. So I think we, you know, we sort of cover all bases. I write historical, Catherine writes crime and Carmel writes really compelling uplit um, fiction. So we have a really nice breadth of experience and and, um, interests as well. One of the pieces of advice you give on your website, which I thought might have been a tongue-in-cheek reference to your Irish heritage, you say, write drunk, edit sober. (laughs) (laughs) I had to laugh at that. I can't take credit for that. I think that was Hemingway. (laughs) But I, um, yeah, I love that. I think it's so it just to me sums up how to tackle the writing process. So it's this whole idea of you're not expected to write the perfect book the first time you sit at your desk and try to get the idea out of your head onto paper. This idea of first drafts, allowing yourself to make mistakes, allowing your writing to be far from perfect because you're trying to find the story, you're developing your characters, your narrative. Um, so this idea of freeing yourself, so the crazy drunken you know, go crazy when you're writing, but when you edit, when you rewrite, when you're polishing, then you need to be really on it and completely sober. 
And so it just kind of captures that sense of don't don't be too hard on yourself when you're first drafting. Once you've got the story down, then you can go through a more serious, sober cup of tea rather than a gin and tonic. <laughs> That's right. I think with the first draft, it's it's very noticeable when you start writing that edit that that uh, critic editor voice is very much there in your head. You have to kind of switch that off, don't you? You really do, and it, it's not easy. Um, and I think you know that's why a lot of books are abandoned. It's not that the book isn't good or that the writing isn't good. It's that self doubt, um, and also it's really hard. It's really difficult to continue writing and and keep control of a story and your characters and all the threads for a hundred thousand words. It's really really difficult. Um, and you just have to allow yourself, give yourself the permission for that to be a bit messy when you first try. Mm. You know, mm. it's like having a piece of clay as a sculptor. You're not going to perfect that beautiful thing the first time you put your hands on it. You've got to shape it and work with it. And it's exactly the same with a story. So um, I don't encourage yes. people to get drunk when they're writing, but <laughs> that was Hemingway's way of putting it. <laughs> I must admit, I hadn't realised it was Hemingway, so that's my bad. (laughs) Look, you've mentioned you were a very keen reader, and this is the joys of binge reading. So turning to Hazel as reader, Mm. what do you like to read, and and who have you been passionate about in the past? Well, it won't surprise you that I love uh, historical <laughs> historical fiction. I actually, mm. um, I came to historical novels as a reader first through Philippa Gregory, um, ah. her amazing Tudor Court series, um, The Other Berlin Girl, was really the book that for me, I read it and, and went, oh my gosh, this is, she makes it feel like it's happening now. And it was a really different um, sort of dramatic dynamic way to tell those historical events that we think we know all about and who's Mary Boleyn you know this was incredible to me and I got to meet and interview Philippa once I was an established author and it was just the most incredible connection back to hearing how she researched that book and um, so she she had a really big influence on me as a reader and a writer and also Rose Tremaine I absolutely adore um, her writing the, the colour um, about prospectors in New Zealand, I do believe. Yes, that's right. Yeah, an amazing book. And um, Music and Silence, again, she writes historicals so beautifully. Um, so I, they would be two who I would go back to, um, you know, Merivale, again, one of hers, just incredible restoration. Um, but I, I am fortunate now that I am asked often to read books ahead of publication. So I get to read a lot more widely than I possibly would have. As I've mentioned, my friend Catherine writes thrillers. So she terrifies the life out of me every now and again. (laughs) Um, And Catherine uh, Carmel writes these gorgeous, uplifting, real contemporary stories that are full of heart. Um, So I'm, I'm lucky. Yeah. I, I have a million books on my bedside locker at the same time and several piles on the floor and I never have time to read them all, but it's a lovely problem to have. Who would you recommend if people were looking for a, a read net right now? Um, well, actually, I have just, I'm about ooh, a third of the way into Jojo Moy's latest, The Giver of Stars. 
Um, oh yes, that's so historical, isn't it? It is, and she went back to historical because she originally she used to write historicals and gorgeous books. I think one of hers is being made into a movie, The Last Letter from Your Lover, which again was a book I read and was just blown away by. And then the Me Before You incredible phenomenon um, came and she's the giver of stars is sort of her first return to historical about um, horseback librarians in Kentucky in the great depression of the 1930s. And it's, it's, um, it's lovely and real escapism and I'm really enjoying it. So I'd, I'd recommend that to people. And actually I read um, recently as well, Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid. Um, which I'd highly recommend, especially if anybody out there listening uh, loves Fleetwood Mac. It's uh, sort of a retelling of the band's history and of the lead singer Stevie Nicks, but it's not. It's fictional and it's fabulous. (laughs) Well, that sounds great. That sounds wonderful. But we are starting to come to the end of our time together. So circling and looking from where we're standing now back over the years, not that it's that many years in your case, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all over again, what would you change, if anything? I honestly, I wouldn't change a thing. And I, I'm I'm very lucky, I suppose, in a way to be able to say that um, it's not always been perfect. Um, believe me, there have been serious moments of doubt. Obviously, I went through several years of rejection to get the yes. You know, you only need one yes. Um, but I think every rejection, every difficult moment of self-doubt, every struggle, every bad review has just helped me become a better writer. So I wouldn't change any of it because it's all been part of the path and the path I'm still on. And I, there are still things I want to achieve. There are many, many more books I want to write. Um, there are lots of, lots of things on my bucket list as an author still to tick. So it's, it's, yeah, I'm eight books in and I kind of in a way feel that I'm only just getting going. Um, and my new book releasing later this year, which will be called The Bird in the Bamboo Cage, um, will be releasing in New Zealand in August, um, is taking me to a new location. It's set in China in World War II um, and tells the story of a group of school children and their teachers who were caught up in a Japanese internment camp. Um, so again, a new era, a new location, and I can't wait for people to read that book and hopefully many more that I'll go on to write beyond that. Wow, that sounds like a, a very different, um, you know, step out, step in another direction. Yeah, and I and I think, you know, it's, it's a personal challenge. Um, I think naturally with each book you write, you find another layer of, of confidence in your storytelling, um, in your ability to overcome those hurdles and, and get the story down. Um, and it's, it's it's an ever evolving process so it's it's lovely to have had the success and to be finding new readers all the time um and and long may it last yeah yes just for those who are looking at you and thinking oh I'd love to have that life is there one thing you've done perhaps more than any other that you would credit as the secret of your success Honestly, hard work. Um, there are yes. there are no yeah. shortcuts, and it's something I talk about a lot. There is no secret formula. Um, it is it's messy. I mean, if you could see my desk where I'm sitting right now, you would you would want to send in somebody to help me because it's just <laughs> I'm surrounded by 
chaos. I obviously I'm a busy mom as well. I have to stop writing at certain times of the day to do the school run, to help with homework, to go to football and rugby. Um, you know, it's it's chaos really, but it you have to make it work. And hard work is the only thing that will ever get your book written and tenacity. You've got to keep going. You've got to hang in there when the rejections are flying in, or if you have a bad day, a bad review, you've just got to sort of arm yourself with your self-belief um, and ride out those tough days. It, it is often perceived as a very glamorous lifestyle. And certainly there are, there are days when it, it it's, it's wonderful. Um, and I, as I said, I feel very blessed to do the job I do now, but as with any job, there are days when it's a grind, there are days when it doesn't go well, and you've just got to ride that out um, and just work hard, get your bomb in your writing chair and get the words down, because that's the only way a story will ever, ever be written. Yes. And what is next for Hazel, the writer, looking ahead into 2020? What projects do you have on your desk? So I have, as I mentioned, uh, The Bird in the Bamboo Cage coming out in late summer. Um, so that's very exciting. That's releasing in North America and Australia, New Zealand, the UK and Ireland all at the same time. Um, and then at the same time, I'm currently working on the next Hazel Gaynor-Heather Webb collaboration. So that book is scheduled for release sometime in 2021, which sounds like the future at this at this moment in time. And then in the next month, I'll be starting, I'm sort of starting to tentatively feel around for the next idea for the next Hazel Gainer book. So that'll be a possibly late 2021, early 2022 release. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, so lots to keep me busy, hopefully some inspiration project along the way, lots of events, festivals. I love, love getting out and talking to readers um, meeting people. It's it's just wonderful to do that as well. That's great. Now, if if people can't actually see you in person, of course, because people around the world can't all come to Ireland, yes. where can readers find you online? So they can find me procrastinating on Twitter. <laughs> at, um, I'm quite straightforward on my social media. It's at Hazel Gaynor, uh, G-A-Y-N-O-R. And that's Twitter, Instagram, and my Facebook is um, Hazel Gainer Books, and I'm hazelgainer.com for my website. We'll have all of those links in the show notes so that people will be able to click through quite easily. Do you enjoy interacting with readers? I do. I, you know, I find it fascinating. And I often think, you know, when you finish a book and it's published, it, it doesn't belong to you anymore. It really, then it goes, it's up to the readers then to, and people will always find something or see something. They have really interesting views on the world that you've built, the characters, the dilemmas you put them in. Um, and all of my books have reading group questions at the back. And I I love meeting readers. It's, it's fascinating. And often a reader will have only just read, for example, The Girl Who Came Home or one of my backlists. So it's always really fabulous to just meet someone who's just read a book that you maybe wrote six, seven years ago. And that's mm. so fabulous about books. You know, they're they're evergreen. They're they're always there. It's just waiting for the reader to find them. Um, but yeah, I, I have great fun. I love meeting readers. I'm a reader myself, so I love just having chats about books. <laughs> it's good fun. 
That's wonderful, Hazel. Well, look, thank you so much. We have run out of time, but it's been wonderful talking and we'll get all these uh, links up on the on the show notes so that people will be able to find you and your books without any problems at all. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Bye now. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.